Hi, everybody. Welcome to First Impressions, the podcast where we uh, discuss our love for Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all the haters. I am here with my friend Maggie, and I'll allow her this time to actually introduce herself. Well, hello, everyone. <laughs> she didn't have to talk over me. Well, why don't you say who you are? I am Kristen, and Ta-da! I am a Jane Austen obsessive. And since this is episode, I think, 13 of the podcast, sweet. Jesus. I know. <laughs> Who is listening to this? Uh, well, our, my mom, definitely. <laughs> Hi, mom. We have almost, we are, I think, close to 100 followers, likes slash followers on our Facebook page. I know, which is amazing. We should make that our next goal, to we, get to 100. To get to 100 followers. So, we're very excited to be doing Sense and Sensibility. This is our first episode. We are going to, this episode, focus on the bones of the story, the major themes, and obviously we're going to be talking about Eleanor and Marianne, the two main characters. And what I'm going to do, what we're going to do instead of a plot summary is to start introducing the characters to you, and that will naturally explain the plot of the book, I think very elegantly, um, and who the characters are as well. But the first thing that I wanted to say, um, and, and you know, we've obviously both read the book very recently, refresh our memories. Um, the first thing I wanted to say, gentle listeners, is if you do not like swears, if you do not like swear words, this may not be the episode for you because <laughs> I, I intend to swear. I um, reread Sense and Sensibility, and Austin's books um, always had the capability to surprise me, even on a millionth reading, in many small ways. You know, I would read a passage and I would think, has this always been here? This is an amazing passage. I never saw it before. However, reading Sense and Sensibility this time was a total conversion, like a near religious experience where I was like, I've never seen this book this way before. I'm I like, feel very much the same. We talked about this. Yeah. When we, Kristen and I will usually kind of powwow before we were recording when we're rereading to just kind of point out things that we want to make sure we talk about. And I think I said to you the other night, oh, we should mention, first of all, that we're in person again. Yeah. Kristen right. is still back in town dealing with um, the, move. the move and still packing up stuff. So we are in person again. Uh, but I think I mentioned that. When I reread it this time, I enjoyed it so much more. I know, because you were not a sense of I just thought it was really... So I read it originally... It was a while ago uh, when Kristen picked it from book club we were in. It was a mistake. And I thought it was really dry at that point. But maybe I've just been swimming in the Austin water now for so long. But I loved it. I couldn't put it down on this reread. Once you get used to the language, and it does seem overcomposed to modern reader, but once you get used to the language and you're, as you said, swimming in it, and and it doesn't, you can get the full impact of everything she's saying. And as a book club choice, a lot of those uh, ladies in the book club were not. Austin initiates, and I think it was really hard for yeah. them. And when I started reading it for the book club and reading it with those eyes, I was like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> but I need to swear because, so I swear a lot. It's a bad habit. Oh no, I do too. I've tried to break myself of it, but when I do limit myself, I feel like my range of expression is limited, and I just get frustrated because what I want to say is the swear. So I could come here today and tell you that this book is so freaking good. I could tell you that it's so flippin' awesome, <laughs> so frackin' amazing. Oh, okay, good. But good. I'm not going to tell you those reference. things because this book is a fucking triumph. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it was anybody else's book, it would be their fucking masterpiece. And I would just like to point out that <laughs> a lot of the time we talk on this podcast, I mean, I would say that Jane Austen was, for her time, a feminist. 
a lot of the reason why we feel like we can't swear is because as women, it's seen as not ladylike. I mean, obviously, you don't want to go to work and be like, I just read Sense and Sensibility and it was fucking amazing, <laughs> like to your boss, because that is obviously not appropriate. Not sure. uh, but a lot of it is we feel like we kind of can't express ourselves that way because it's vulgar and we're supposed to be ladies and it's inappropriate. Well, you know what? Fuck that, because yeah. we can use whatever language we want. We're going to channel Mrs. Jennings and talk about anything we want to talk about and say anyone anything we want to talk about. And so <sighs> Mrs. Um, you'll learn about her if you don't know who Mrs. Jennings is. She's a character in Sense and Sensibility. So we both loved it is the takeaway. The loved takeaway. it more on this reread than we have. Two thumbs up from Maggie and Kristen. Yes. Uh, why don't you give us some background on the novel, Kristen? Um, so, so Austin wrote Northern Abbey. She wrote First Impressions when she was very young. These were the first drafts. And then she wrote a draft called Eleanor and Marianne, which was an epistolary novel. Then, after she lived her life and after she went to Bath, then when she was at Chawton and she started really writing, she took those things and revised them. And so when she was like 33 or 34 is when it was first published. So... She had taken her early draft, polished it up. So Sense and Sensibility was the first one that she polished up and released as her mature author self. And I think you see that a little bit in the language because when you do read it, it has echoes of Fanny Burney and those super long digressions and and uh, the long dialogue that goes on a little too. It's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. You know, it's making the same point over and over again. Too much. To a certain extent. I think a, a, a modern editor... Well, the language is very um, normal for the time, but a modern editor looking at this probably would have cut parts of it to just kind of improve the flow and the pacing. Not to say that it's not enjoyable the way it is, because obviously we both really, really enjoyed it. Um, but I think these, if, if it was kind of looked at again, we, there could, it was longer than I expected. Let's put it that way. And there are some things that I think later era Austin as even mature, more Mm -hmm. mature writer, she would have cut some things shorter or made some certain things more concise. And she talks about lopping and chopping pride and prejudice and the, going through and and um but as you said it's still for all that amazing and her instincts were so good Mm -hmm. that she avoided so many problems that the other authors of her time fell into um that she even makes fun of in Northanger Abbey (laughs) um so yeah so so this particular novel as we kind of said every Austen novel begins at the potential ending of another Austen novel why don't you read us the first sentence Kristen The family of Dashwood had long been settled in Sussex. That's the first sentence. I'm hooked already. (laughs) (laughs) Their estate was large and their residence was at Norland Park, in the center of their property, where for many generations they had lived in so respectable a manner as to engage the general good opinion of their surrounding acquaintance. But that is really great because you're thinking... So it's kind of like the beginning of Emma. So Emma is about someone who is rich and established. And from that first sentence, you would think that they that were. was what we were going to be talking about. We're talking about an old family, one that has an estate that is well has well established, is thought of well. And um, uh, within the first chapter, though, or the first section, we immediately learn that the girls, um, they live in a rich estate, but their father has died, and the estate reverts to their half-brother, a brother from a first marriage. So the girls, Eleanor and Marianne, are from a second marriage, and they don't 
or they they basically have they they have a situation like the Bennett girls. If their father had died, they would have been left to make their way in the world. So this is in the alternate Pride and Prejudice where they were not Jane and Lizzie were not married, and their father does die. Yeah, what would have happened? And so they're in a situation where they're very genteel. They've been brought up to gentility, yet they don't have the money. So they're in that weird Austin state of. How am I going to find someone to marry? How are we going to get over the fact that nobody wants a young man to marry me because I don't have any dowry? Mm-hmm. And so, it, um, I think they were both left what, like a thousand pounds in the will. Yes, it's a, it's a it's a minor amount of money. Right. They have they have a little bit of money, but um, it's still not good enough. Well, certainly not enough to attract <laughs> an eligible young man. There certainly are not so many rich young men in the world as there are pretty women to deserve them. And this That's is, how I feel. This is the Austin. About it's, myself. And, um, <laughs> it, yeah. um, Bay is not here. <laughs> By the way, he's out of town. <laughs> you're a working woman, though. You're doing That's it. That's true. You're a lady doing it for yourself. I don't need anyone to take care of me, Maggie, except emotionally. Maggie is a damn attorney. She is like... Yeah, if you didn't know that, you should be afraid. She's the baddest (laughs) bitch. By the way, wine is back in the mix. (laughs) But we we have taken the advice of our listeners. We have not not had to excess. We have just had a glassy. But, um, so, two rich girls have lost their father. They've had to leave their estate... Um, they have, uh, there's a younger sister who doesn't really matter, but their mother is in the story <laughs> wow. too. She's like the kitty bed. Yeah, what's her name? Margaret. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But, um, well, Margaret exists as a plot device because sometimes the characters need to impart information to the audience. And while Austin doesn't really hesitate to tell instead of showing, um, Margaret will sometimes be along for purposes of when people go places they wouldn't go by themselves, like Margaret can accompany them. It's so true that Austin is comfortable telling, um, and you can't get away with that today in modern literature. People are like, well, boring. But she does start out sensibility by giving you an introduction to the characters. But what I thought, so let's talk about the characters. Um, these two girls, even though they are um, have to leave, they still live for a little while with their half-brother at Norland, this estate. It's totally awkward. It's totally awkward. They don't get along with the brother's wife, Fanny. Uh, Fanny. There's always a good character with a name and a bad character with a name, mm-hmm. if you've ever noticed in Austin. But anyway, um, then a man enters the picture. Edward Ferrers. Cullen. No, just kidding. <laughs> He's not a vampire. <laughs> Unless Arnie has a shadow plot about that that I don't know about. Edward Ferrers comes into the picture, and we learn about him through the eyes of Mrs. Dashwood, the mother, and Marianne and Eleanor. So I just wanted to take a minute to explain how each of these people sees Well, let's talk a little bit first about Eleanor and Marianne. Just establish that the novel is called Sense and Sensibility. And the reason why is because Eleanor represents sense. Cool-headedness. Yes, logic. She's the Vulcan, if yes, you will. Yes, um, It represents sense. She's the elder sister. Yes. And Marianne represents sensi- sensibility, which at the time was like emotion. Yes. Delicate sensibilities, right? Marianne Feelings. is basically the drama queen, mm-hmm. if you know someone like that. She does not have a thought she did not express. 
everything she feels to excess. There's no in between. Right. It, she's so over the top. It's um. It's funny. It actually is funny. Yeah. And she is. She wants to be a modern day Juliet. And she's a typical, I would say, typical teenager. These days, we would consider her just your typical. I mean, she's very intelligent. She's very honorable, just like all Austin heroines. She has a strong sense of what's right and wrong. However, her she's sensibility, and her mother is the same way. Mm-hmm. Her mother is also has a lot of sensibility, and her mother is in the depths of grief for the loss of the girl's father. And she notices Edward Ferrers by thinking, oh, this guy is here in my house. He's quiet. He's unobtrusive. Um, I like that about him. Then let's talk about how Eleanor sees Edward Ferrers. Eleanor falls in love with Edward Ferrers. And he's not a character as a reader that it's easy to fall in love with. I always saw him as sort of a cipher. I mean, he comes in the story very early. Eleanor falls in love with him very early. And then he's sort of gone out of the story. And it's almost as though Jane Austen has said, okay, here's the man you love. He's gone, you know, go. Go, heroine. I think, so, I mean, we both loved the novel and we both loved Jane Austen. I think a criticism of this book could be that she had this idea, I want these two sisters, they're both going to be very different in how they love and how they express themselves. And so they both need to fall in love. And then we'll see their reactions when it doesn't go well. Spoiler! Um, yeah. But she kind of doesn't take the time to set up Eleanor and Edward's courtship and relationship, such as it is. This is what I was saying when she tells instead of showing. It just kind of happens at the very beginning. Edward shows up and then just says that, you know, he and Eleanor hang out a lot. She starts to love him. It's a, She gets the feeling he returns her feelings. But we don't ever really get to spend time with the two of them to see it as the reader. She just tells us they love each other and then he has to leave. See, I always thought that was true until this reading. Really? And then I did a very close read. I picture Kristen like reading at 3 a.m. under the covers of the flashlight <laughs> with her highlighter. I did, I did a very close read read and something strange happened. I fell in love with Edward Ferrers. <laughs> I did. And I'm going to read you a passage about what Eleanor says about him when she's saying to Marianne, after Marianne says, I see you love, you know, I think you love this guy. Eleanor says, of his sense and goodness, no one can, I think, be in doubt who has seen him often enough to engage him in unreserved conversation. The excellence of his understanding and his principles can be concealed only by that shyness which too often keeps him silent. You know enough of him to do justice to his solid worth, but of his minuter propensities, as you call them, you have from peculiar circumstances been kept more ignorant than myself. He and I have been at times thrown a good deal together, while you have been wholly engrossed on the most affectionate principle by my mother." I have seen a great deal of him, have studied his sentiments, and heard his opinion on subjects of literature and taste. And upon the whole, I venture to pronounce that his mind is well informed, his enjoyment of books exceedingly great, his imagination lively, his observation just and correct, and his taste delicate and pure. His abilities in every respect improve as much upon acquaintance as his manners in person. At first sight, his address is certainly not striking and his person can hardly be called handsome, till the expression of his eyes, which are uncommonly good, and the general sweetness of his countenance is perceived. 
At present, I know him so well that I think him really handsome, or at least almost so. What say you, Marianne? And um, this is very romantic for the character of Eleanor. She holds herself back from saying a lot of positive things about anyone. She's very reserved. And since I know so much about the character, when I heard her say all that this time, I'm like, wow, she really loves this dude. She's putting it out all on the table. And um, But let's hear what Marianne thinks about Edward. So she, Marianne loves her sister Eleanor. She's happy for Eleanor. But this is how she feels about Edward. And I think we learn a lot about Marianne from this. Edward is very amiable, and I love him tenderly, but yet he is not the kind of young man there is a something wanting. His figure is not striking. It has none of the grace which I should expect in a man who could seriously attach my sister. His eyes want all that spirit, that fire, which at once announced virtue and intelligence. And besides all this, I am afraid, Mama, he has no real taste. Music seems scarcely to attract him, and though he admires Eleanor's drawings very much, it is not the admiration of a person who can understand their worth. It is evident, in spite of his frequent attention to her while she draws, that in fact he knows nothing of the matter. He admires as a lover, not as a connoisseur. To satisfy me, these characters must be united. I could not be happy with a man whose taste did not in every point coincide (laughs) with my own. He must enter into all my feelings. The same books, the same music must charm us both. Oh, Mama, how spiritless, how tame was Edward's manner in reading to us last night. I felt for my sister most severely, yet she bore it with so much composure, she seemed scarcely to notice it. I could hardly keep my seat. To hear those beautiful lines, which have frequently almost driven me wild, pronounced with such impenetrable calmness, such dreadful indifference... And then her mother says, he would certainly have done more justice to simple and elegant prose. I thought so at the time, but you would give him Cooper. (laughs) We all remember Cooper. Oh, yeah, Cooper. Oh, yeah. Cut down an avenue. Does not it make you think of Cooper? (laughs) Um, A very romantic poet. And um, and Marianne, if you don't express what you feel in raptures, Marianne just assumes that you have no feelings at all. Yeah, that calmness, and, and I love the phrase, the simple and elegant prose, because that's who he is as a person. He's a very prosy person, but he's simple yeah. and elegant and quiet. I would love to see Marianne's OkCupid okay profile, <laughs> and I would love to see her reading the profiles of other people, because she would just be like, oh, oh, you like that show? Oh, no, no, this is, not this is absolutely not She does not have time for basic bitches. No. And I think that it has to, <laughs> you have to, all of your answers to all of the questions have to match exactly. Um, well, Marianne is kind of like that, a Catherine Moreland gone bad in that she has read too many romantic novels. And so if her life is not like a romantic novel, she will be disappointed. You are a genius. That is such a good point. And um, I, I completely agree. And Marianne's overly uh, sincere, over-the-top just um, romanticism is often the humor. This book is so funny. And Eleanor, the oldest sister, can seem very dry and um, sometimes is frustrating because she's so sensible and it's like, come mm-hmm. on, girl. But actually, she is funny as shit. She feels it all inside. She just doesn't... She has the funniest of dry observations. Mm-hmm. So that a classic exchange between them is when Marianne is talking about their home, Norland. So they've moved away. <laughs> and she says, oh, Norland, oh, I wish I could be there now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the fall. So like, oh, the walks were thickly covered with dead leaves and I used to thrill to be among them. 
And Eleanor says, It is not everyone who has your passion for dead leaves. (laughs) (laughs) When I was reading Marianne's um, monologues, shall we say, where she will go on and on about something ridiculous. It always, if I can draw another parallel to another literary heroine, it's very much like an Anne Shirley Mm -hmm. kind of moment. Mm -hmm. If you've read Anne of Green Gables or if you've seen any of the fantastic television adaptation starring Megan Follows, where Anne builds these um, alternate worlds and alternate realities in her head and becomes so engrossed in her imagination and how these romantic things that she wants to happen and it has to be so dramatic and she's driven to tears and raptures by things like puff sleeves on dresses and it's very similar. I mean, we all know people like that. Everything is the end of the world or the best thing that ever happened. Yeah. And that would that is sort of like Marianne's ideal. Oh, to die for love. And spoilers, she, through this conviction, gets herself into a lot. Of I will say, though, and we're gonna t- we will talk about the movie. We're going to do a whole episode on the movie a couple episodes from now. Uh, reading this book, it was actually different. I had guess I remembered it wrong. I was thinking of the movie where she kind of does drive herself to getting sick. In the book, it's kind of like she just gets sick. Yeah. It's not as dramatic. She weakens herself. Another spoiler alert, uh, like she and Willoughby break up. We made a lot of good choices to heighten and elevate what's going on here. But it is, her getting sick is um, ascribed to, she's weakened herself. Yeah, she doesn't eat, she doesn't sleep. Um, She displays a lot of the symptoms of clinical depression, but I think Mm -hmm. we'll get there. Right, so Edward has shown up, Eleanor's in love with him, they're still at Norland. They're still at Norland. Then, Edward does not propose as everyone expects. He just leaves. He blows it. And Eleanor is, you know, very concerned by this. Um, but, you know, she's like, well, there were a lot, you know, she didn't have her hopes too high. Because she's like, she's a realist. She, he's going to inherit a lot of money, and his mother would definitely have opposed the match. And so I never considered it as certain. Whereas Marianne and Mrs. Dashwood, the mother, are like, oh, it's a match. You know, like, they just jump from their hope and expectation to total belief in what's going to happen. But what's interesting is when they are forced to leave, because obviously the house now belongs to their brother, I think John Dashwood? Yes. And his wife, Fanny. The house now belongs to them, so they can stay there for a little while, but Mrs. Dashwood, Eleanor, and Marianne, and Margaret are expected to find someplace else to leave, to, to live. So when they do leave... And Edward has left. It's not like Mrs. Dashwood and Marianne are like, can you believe what Edward did? He didn't propose. It's ridiculous. I always knew he was. They just assume that there's an understanding. And that he's coming back yeah. to propose later. And like, oh, okay, well, we'll see him soon. He'll come visit us. And this is a continual thorn in Eleanor's so side. so She's like, no, guys, you can't count on this. She's like, we're not engaged. Yeah. It's not going to happen. And so that's why she's so well prepared when he doesn't come back is because she's sensible. I mean, she has her own romanticism, but it's in a very sensible way. But so what happens is they move to um, Devonshire. Into a cottage. Into a cottage. And they're a long distant relation. Yeah. Yes. Sir John Middleton. Right. A distant relation, and we'll talk more about him and many other supporting characters, um, I think, in the second podcast when we're going to dwell on the humor. But for the point of the plot, we'll just say that this fellow, Sir John, who has given them a cottage, has a friend, Colonel Brandon. Before we get into Colonel Brandon, I just want to mention that one of the reasons why I really love Eleanor is that she is the sense. 
So she's basically the only one that steps up. Their father has died. Marion and Mrs. Dashwood are a fucking mess. <laughs> and Eleanor is the one who has to be like, we need to think about money. Yeah. We need to think about where we're going to live. They get other offers of places. And she's like, we can't afford this. Yeah. Like, th- when the offer of the cottage comes in, Mrs. Dashwood is like, okay, this one looks good. And Eleanor's like, yes, this will work. Um, and the mom, when they get there, their mother's like, we can make all these improvements another year or so. And Eleanor's <laughs> like, oh, you are crazy. We don't have the money. We have to no do money. That. She, but you know what? She's probably really sad, too. Yes, but, but she knows that she has to step head. up. She keeps her and do it. But the, but the mother and Marianne are both, like, selfishly... They're spoiled from having wealth, and they're, they're not clear-sighted about wealth. And there's a part later in the book where Marianne's lover, whose name is Willoughby, wants to give her a horse Ugh. as a gift. Well, you can't just get a horse. You have to have a stable. You have to have food for the horse. You have to have a servant to exercise a horse every day. It is an extreme expense. I mean, it's like that now. You can't just yeah have a and horse. It was, it was I have friends that actually do have horses. They enjoy riding. Riding is a big thing in Virginia. But the horse lives like an hour and a half away because you have to stable it yeah. somewhere. You yeah. can't just have it at your house and in a the, suburb. That land. Exactly. And so when Eleanor sees this, she's like, Marianne. What are you doing <laughs> to our mother? How could you possibly ask our mother to take on this expense? It would it would make her... She's not going to say no. She's just like you. And mm-hmm. then it would make us both poor. So she has to interpose and say, money means something. It's important. This is the lesson of Austin, right? You have to be practical, mm-hmm. you, you know, and, and you don't want an imprudent situation. You want an imprudent marriage either. So Marianne... Um, is this very beautiful girl. She has a lot of sensibility. And so they move to the cottage. They move to the cottage, and Colonel Brandon uh, meets the neighbor. Marianne. He's a neighbor. He meets Marianne. He sees Marianne. He falls instantly in love with Marianne because she reminds him of his first love. But he's an older man. God forbid. He's, he's 30, 30 years old. Six. <laughs> Which, gentle listeners, as you know, (laughs) is my age. So there is a whole section, I'm sure Kristen, I don't know if she has that flag to read some of it, but there's a whole section where Marianne goes on and on about how old Colonel Brandon is and how he already has a touch of the rheumatism and he could never possibly be married again. He's too infirm. And also, Mrs. Dashwood kind of finds that insulting, which is hilarious, too. But I'm reading this, and I'm like, fuck you, Marianne. Part where she says, a woman of 27 can never hope to feel or inspire affection again. Yeah. She, she might get married, but it's purely a commercial transaction. Mm. And so Eleanor's she, like, whatever. <laughs> That's the extreme sensibility. And, and um, you know, he, he sees Marianne. Now, he's had a love. He's lost a love. Marianne, he knows... Uh, does not approve of second attachments. She believes that you have one love and one love only, and then that's it. Like a penguin. And so one night, Mary- But which Eleanor, because Eleanor is hilarious and super smart, <laughs> notes that for some reason, Marianne doesn't seem to make the connection that her father himself <laughs> actually had two loves, one of which was their mother, 
and they are the result. But for some reason, Marianne doesn't see that as relevant to her life experience. Colonel Brandon is asking Eleanor about Marianne. And by the way, Colonel Brandon and Eleanor are BFF. People, both, and people think that Colonel Brandon, love. yeah, and they would be a good match, personally. They, I think. they would, except for he has this, this, this romantic... Um, streak mm-hmm. where he he can only really be inspired by a woman who's as passionate as his first love once was. Oh my god, fan song. Um, so in the movie, as you know, Alan Rickman is Colonel Brandon, and it's just like, oh, it's so great. <laughs> you just root for him because it's Alan Rickman. He's a fantastic Colonel Brandon because at the end, Colonel Brandon really comes in to tell us everything's going to be okay. He's mm-hmm. a level-headed guy. He's there with the money. He's there as father figure. He's the sadder but wiser Mr. hero, if you will. Oh. Like he has yeah. loved and lost, um, and he understands what it is. And he nurtures this impossible love for Marianne, or he, he can't quash it, because he has to observe Willoughby, oh. Mr. Willoughby, come in, swoop in. So Marianne is walking. With she, Margaret. With Margaret. The, the all-important Margaret, in the rain, she falls down, she sprains her ankle. Well, why does she fall down? They are running down the hill. Well, I love that, because this is something I would do, though. I mean, I relate to Eleanor because I feel like I am forced to often step up and be the person who kind of considers the practicalities and logistics of things. But if you're in a beautiful, I'm gesturing, a beautiful English countryside and a storm's coming, you will run down the hill. and. But then, of course... It's me, like Marianne, I will slip and fall. <laughs> and a handsome man will come and swoop you up in his happens arms. to be walking by yeah, hunting. Just happened. He literally sweeps her off her feet. <laughs> yeah, he literally does. He picks her up and carries her home. And she's too modest to say, oh, I can't walk home. So he's just like, I see what's needed here and picks her up in his arms. And from that moment, she is gone. And the nature of her love for Willoughby and, and their relationship is actually very unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to, neither of them can hold back. Marianne especially can't hold back. And even the first time they get together and sort of talk for the first time, Eleanor kind of cautions her and says, wow, Marianne, you obviously have made it apparent that you like this guy, which back in the day was kind of a Mm no-no. And Marianne goes, oh, I guess I should have been dull and spiritless and (laughs) maybe talked only of the weather and makes makes fun of her sister's, you know, caution. Which is a hilarious kind of way because at the end of the novel, Eleanor does talk about the weather in a very (laughs) romantic situation. But anyway, I wanted to read a passage about how unhealthy their relationship is. So, this is about Marianne and Willoughby. When he was present, she had no eyes for anyone else. Everything he did was right. Everything he said was clever. If their evenings at the park were concluded with cards, he cheated himself and all the rest of the party to get her a good hand. If dancing formed the amusement of the night, they were partners for half the time, and when obliged to separate for a couple of dances... They were careful to stand together and scarcely spoke a word to anybody else. Such conduct made them, of course, most exceedingly laughed at, but ridicule could not shame and seemed hardly to provoke them. They are so in love, they are totally insensible of everybody else around them. Well, they're them. just like one of those asshole couples who like suck face at the, when you're out to dinner and are just wrapped up in each other and they just ignore everyone else. And, but the problem is back then, I mean, it's kind of unacceptable behavior now, but back then it was really 
unacceptable. It was you just That's the woman. You can't make the yeah. first move and you can't betray. And and you know, it opened her, uh, as it says in the movie, uh, to very imprudent remarks. Everybody knows how much she loves Willoughby, which is why when Willoughby leaves her uh, everybody is gossiping about her, and she takes a very serious fall in the eyes of people she basically despises. I mean, people who are not Willoughby, she basically hates. There is a very funny character named Mrs. Jennings, who is a very loud lady. She has, as it says, vulgar opinions. So, But really, she's just an old lady who does not give a fuck. She's yeah. DGAF. Yeah. And she will say anything that comes into her head. And she's obsessed, like Mrs. Bennett, with getting young women married. Well, because they don't have any hobbies. Because what is she supposed to do? I know. Well, and she cares about, she wants yeah. them to have settled lives. And she's really is she a, a widow person. She is a widow. Okay. So she has nothing, nothing to do to take up her time. All, both her daughters are yeah. married. And now it's the business of her life to get everyone else She's married. just very, like, and everybody's, she's just a big gossip and everybody's business and makes fun of them and doesn't respect boundaries and but but I'm just kidding she's one of those people who will say something totally inappropriate and then go I'm just kidding you know I'm just kidding but it's still rude she has the best heart in the world yeah she's not genuinely kind however she does trample all over Marianne's delicate feelings and delicate sensibilities by making loud jokes about how Colonel Brandon loves Marianne Marianne's like what is a man to be safe from some, such wit of age and infirmity? Do not. I think that's from the movie. But, but she also tortures Eleanor. Just no one knows because they tease her about having um, a lover that she left behind. But they, no one knows how deeply Eleanor actually feels because Eleanor never yes, expresses so she, it. She sort of saves herself. Eleanor sort of saves herself in the end. I mean, she still does have to put up with the jokes because Mrs. Jennings finds out that she loves a man whose name begins with F because of Margaret. Yeah, thanks, Margaret. <laughs> Let's it out at a party. She's like, oh, Eleanor loves a man, and his name begins with an F. And then she's constantly, Eleanor gets teased and teased. But she's like, whatever, they're just teasing. And Marianne is the person who gets offended on Eleanor's behalf. Well, this is what saves Marianne from being unlikable. You still like Marianne because she loves Eleanor. We as the reader love Eleanor because we see how much she does feel but doesn't express. But we love Marianne even though she's ridiculous because we she loves Eleanor and will defend her to the end and understands that Eleanor... All of the things she accuses Edward of being with Eleanor, she knows... She feel, I'm trying to think of how to describe this. She thinks that Edward is basically boring because he doesn't express himself. She's Marianne has lived with Eleanor long enough to know that she is not boring, even though she doesn't express herself and still loves her. <laughs> yeah. So Marianne understands that the things that Mrs. Jennings say hurt Eleanor, and she is basically like, oh, no, no you do not Eleanor. talk to my sister that way. And yeah. so we as the reader still love Marianne in spite of her faults because we know that she will fight for Eleanor. It, Let's talk a little bit about how both Eleanor and Marianne react when their object of affection leaves. So they have moved to this cottage. Marianne has met Willoughby and fallen desperately in love. And then Willoughby leaves, and it's very mysterious. So, Kristen, let's talk about how Willoughby leaves, and then we'll also talk about how Edward, who comes back, also leaves. Yes. Willoughby gets very close, you think, to proposing to Marianne. He takes her to the 
house he's basically going to inherit and shows her around. Yes, so he's he's going to inherit a a fortune from a rich cousin he hasn't inherited yet. So he's a presumptive wealthy man. Mm -hmm. So there's enough money. Yeah, and he takes her there. It's like, what is it, Allenton? Allenham. Allenham. And um, they go there, which is very inappropriate. Mm -hmm. They go there unchaperoned, and they go there. She basically whips out the measuring tape and measures (laughs) for when they're going to go to Pottery Barn and buy furniture. She's like, oh, and we could decorate it this way. It's totally jumping the gun. Side note, Mrs. Jennings has so many funny lines in the book, but when they come back from Allenham, Mrs. Jennings is like, I know where you've been. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what? We were out in our, my curricle. And she goes, yes, yes, Mr. Impudence. I know all that. <laughs> <laughs> You're not fooling anyone. <laughs> um, so yeah. it is everyone is assuming that they're engaged. Everyone's assuming that, but she, she has never come out and told anybody that. But, you know, um, it's almost like a common law engagement. Yeah. You know, everybody is, because of his behavior, not just because of hers. Anyway, then he comes to see Marion alone. Then when Eleanor and Mrs. Dashwood come back, he's acting very guilty. Marion is sobbing. And he's like, she runs go. upstairs. Yeah. And Willoughby just leaves. And you kind of are clued into the fact that he... It's totally ditching Marianne. And and so how does Marianne react? Pretty much as you would expect. Have you ever seen a teenage girl get her heart broken? Because that's pretty much what happens. And I have an amazing passage. So she is unwilling to take any nourishment. She gives pain every moment to her mother and sisters who have to watch her in agony. She forbids all attempt at consolation. And then she walks around Alanon, feels sad. She plays Every favorite song that the, that she had used to be used to play to Willoughby, every air their voices had been oftenest joined, and sat at the instrument gazing on every line of music that he had written out for her till her heart was so heavy that no farther sadness could be gained, and this nourishment of grief was every day applied. She spent whole hours at the pianoforte, alternately singing and crying, her voice often totally suspended by her tears. You know, so this is it's way, over, way the over the top. And she she has a, a problem where she is developing a pattern of thinking. She She's obviously clinically depressed. I think we can armchair diagnose her as a fictional character mm-hmm. by the sort of 50% mark of the story. But she's allowing herself to descend into these patterns of thinkings, which are thinking, which are very unhealthy. I think there's a difference between just kind of giving yourself time to wallow. When something really awful happens to me, I usually give myself a little, I will just cry and be upset. And then after a little while, I'm like, okay, that's it. Like you've had your moment to wallow and now you got to get back to work. But Marianne just lives in that moment of grief forever, continuously. And the really kind of messed up part is I feel that her, her mother doesn't really not care. She obviously cares. Her, her daughter is suffering. But when Eleanor goes to her mother and is like, we got to do something, her mother is like, she'll be okay. I mean, clearly <laughs> she and Willoughby have an understanding clearly. and they're going to correspond in secret and it'll all be fine because Willoughby will come back and they will get married in a little while. And Eleanor is like, how do you know this? <laughs> have you actually asked her <laughs> if they are engaged? And Mrs. Dashwood's like, no. I know it. I know how they act. I would never hurt her by assuming that they... And this is where it all 
goes wrong because neither Mrs. Dashwood nor Eleanor actually go to Marianne and say, you know, are you actually engaged? Because they don't want to hurt her. To a modern reader, it seems very odd. Like, why not just go to her and say, yo, what's up? Are you guys married or what? Getting married or what? Mrs. Dashwood just assumes they are. Eleanor assumes they're not. But nobody actually goes and asks her. Eleanor does say a few things to Marianne, like, Marianne, you have no confidence in me. And Marianne's like, Eleanor, you're in love with Edward, but you're trying to pretend you're not, and I'm not down with that. And so how can you say I have no confidence in you when you clearly have no confidence in me? So that's a good segue in. We've covered how Marianne reacts when Willoughby leaves. So let's talk about Eleanor and Edward, because Edward actually does show up to visit them in the cottage. He is very much invited when they're back at Norland and they're getting ready to leave and he's still there. And Mrs. Dashwood is like, oh, Edward, like you have to come visit us because she wants to get him and Eleanor together. But then he does. He randomly shows up on their doorstep one day and everyone's really excited. But then he behaves like a total dick. Yeah, he's he like up. really not engaged. And he's seems depressed. He seems depressed. He seems depressed. He's not distinguishing Eleanor. And Eleanor's like thinking to herself, she's like, what the fuck? Yeah. But she acts like everything is normal because that's Eleanor's way. She's like, I gotta keep a handle on reality here. But Eleanor, and this is one of the reasons why we can love her, she's not totally dry. She She's not all sense. She has sensibility. And one of the developments I love is that she sees a ring on Edward's finger. Oh, Marianne sees it. Oh, yes, I just reread this part. That, yes. She's making tea, I think, and he reaches across her to get something. And, or she's like pouring the tea and just, oh, Edward, I never noticed that ring before. It has hair kind of bound it's, into it. It's hair jewelry, which was a which thing. Which is totally creepy. Uh, and she goes, oh, I've never noticed that ring before. Is it? So she asks if it's Fanny's, his sister's hair, even though it seems a little dark. Yeah, I, I should have thought her hair had been lighter. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, yes, it is my sister's hair. But he blushes. And he goes, the setting always casts another tone on it, another shade on it, you know. Which is like, whatever. And I'm like, whatever. And Eleanor's like, what? And she looks at the ring. She's like, that is my hair. Yeah, so Eleanor, <laughs> Eleanor thinks it's her hair that he somehow snipped from her when she wasn't paying attention. It's very weird. So she thinks, oh, he really does love me. And yes, she's looking for these little signs and treasuring them up in her heart because she loves him. And um, So again, everyone expects Edward proposed to Eleanor. And this is when when we find out that El- Edward is not actually going to you know, it's a non-starter relationship. This is why we ache for Eleanor is because we know she is like a little bit of romantic at heart. She's mm-hmm. treasuring up these things. So he also leaves. suddenly leaves. Yeah, he's like I got no place to go, but I gotta leave after a week. This is something we should talk about with Edward's character. He actually has quite a few during this visit. Um, in the beginning of the book, like I said, there's more telling than showing he doesn't actually get a chance to talk a lot he doesn't have a lot of dialogue he doesn't express we only see him through the eyes of Eleanor and Marianne and Mrs. Dashwood when he visits them the second time at the cottage he actually does he has a, pers- a lot himself. of personality yeah and he's actually pretty funny too yeah I think. he makes a lot of jokes and he he, he says I am shy he just comes out and yeah, says I am shy it takes like- me a while yeah, and he's like, if I could believe that my manners weren't awkward, it would be so much easier. And you just love him for that. Right. But he blossoms under their roof, I mean, under their society. He can't keep up the whole dick act for long. He's in love with Eleanor, and he loves all of them. And um, that's why it's it's so sad when he just leaves again with no explanation. So Edward's big hang-up is that he's the eldest son. 
He is set to inherit, but he does not have a job. His family wanted him to do something smart, like be in the military. Drive a barouche. But that was too smart for him. (laughs) He wanted to join the clergy, but that was not smart enough for them. Mm -hmm. So he went to school... But now he does nothing. He, I mean, he literally does nothing. He just kind of travels around the country. He's a visiting. private gentleman. He's yeah. an independent. But he doesn't like that. He wants to do something, but he's basically not permitted to do the thing he wants to do, which is join the church. It's not. A, but he basically feels adrift. I think he feels adrift. He feels like he has no purpose. And he admits that. And he tells them all this straight up. Yeah. There's like a conversation where he comes out with all of this, but then he's very depressed. And so Mrs. Dashwood says, oh, because you've been brought up to no trade, your sons will definitely be really busy. And he goes, um, she's like, they'll be much happier. And he goes, I would wish them to be as totally unlike myself as possible. Which is really sad. sad. And then she's like, oh, a few more months will make you happy because she's thinking about Eleanor. And mm-hmm. he's like, I don't think anything could make me happy. And Basically, like, everyone like, in this book is really depressed. Yeah. A lot. Except Mrs. Dashwood, because she has no idea what's going on well, in anybody else. Of course, and Edward says that because he's secretly tortured by his secret engagement. He loves Eleanor, but he's been locked into this previous Because engagement. he's a man of integrity. He will not abandon right. this, this other woman. But let's talk about how Eleanor handles yes. it. Yes, so then he ups and leaves, too. Leaves. And his excuse is, all, is his mother, right? Yes, his excuse is mother. And so he goes... And it says, Eleanor sat down to her drawing table as soon as he was out of the house, busily employed herself the whole day, neither sought nor avoided the mention of his name, appeared to interest herself almost as much as ever in the general concerns of the family. And if by this conduct she did not lessen her own grief, it was at least prevented from unnecessary increase. And her mother and sisters were spared much solicitude on her account. And really, with Marianne, it's a selfishness that allows her to wallow. And with Eleanor, it's a care for others and a concern for others, which is so key in every Austen novel and so core to Austen's morality. This concern for other people's comfort mm-hmm. that keeps her on the straight and narrow. Well, also, yes. But I think that, Ellen, just as we have said that Marianne has a, like, basically a toxic relationship with Willoughby and an unhealthy response when he leaves, I feel like Eleanor's is also... Maybe not as bad, but also unhealthy. She compartmentalizes so much. She holds it in so much. And that is not a healthy response either. Part of showing no emotion is not the way that we are meant to function, to be considered emotionally normal and healthy. And that's, but at this point, remember, she doesn't know that there's no chance. Right. She she still is together. She's still heartbroken because he left. And then a peculiar kind of torture comes over Eleanor because then she learns that they're divided forever, but she can't show any grief. And she even says at the end, she's Mm -hmm. like, had I not been bound to secrecy, you would have seen that I was very unhappy. And the secrecy she's bound to is um, this other character. But I'll I'll just read this paragraph about Marianne. Uh, So Marianne sees how Eleanor is not upset. It says, such behavior as this, so exactly the reverse of her own, appeared no more meritorious to Marianne than her own had seemed faulty to her. The business of self-command she settled very easily. With strong affections it was impossible, with calm ones it could have no merit. That her sister's affections were calm, she dared not deny, though she blushed to acknowledge it. 
And of the strength of her own, she gave a very striking proof by still loving and respecting that sister in spite of this mortifying <laughs> conviction that her, her sister's affections are not strong. But what she does well, they're both horrified. They're both horrified by the other's behavior. But just yeah. <laughs> Eleanor is like, can you believe this <laughs> display? And Marianne is like, how can you not feel? Yeah. What are you, a robot? Except, you know, obviously they didn't have and robots. It's, it's, except it takes a lot of energy out of Eleanor. It takes, a, it takes something to pretend like everything is fine when you're sad. <laughs> and she's willing to exert herself. But then Lucy Seal comes into the oh, picture. God, I just think it's so brilliant how Austin... They are both... Eleanor and Marianne are both fully fleshed out characters. They are not caricatures. They are not just archetypes of sense and sensibility. They are both full people. But they both have completely opposite reactions to things. And, 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 and Eleanor shows you can have sensibility as a sensible person. Mm-hmm. But she's almost forced into this unhealthiness, partly by Regency society, which says she has to display tranquility at all times. I mean, that was the ideal that they were all striving for. Marianne is kind of granted the luxury of being ridiculous because Eleanor has always held... She's the elder sister, and she kind of holds it together. So Marianne can take that younger sibling um, kind of freedom and run with it and be a total mess. And no one will kind of they don't judge her as harshly because she's kind of you know she's like well she's young yeah Eleanor can't act like that no I mean it's all the burden is all on her shoulders. Mm-hmm. someone's got to keep it together yeah yeah um and uh, exactly and so Eleanor is forced to keep it together con- continually uh this woman Lucy, Lucy Steele comes into Eleanor's life now there are two there are actually two Steel. There are two Steel sisters. sisters. Miss Steel, the eldest, is basically just comic relief. She she is so dumb. Her discussion <laughs> about bows is oh, hilarious. She's constantly referring to bow. Uh, it's like the bay, but not like my bay, but like B A E, like when bay shows up, and you know, like how that's a thing now, he or like a shorty. Fine bay. She's talking about bays. <laughs> no, she's not very attractive. She's real dumb, and she, but she loves to act like she has all these bow, and she mm-hmm. loves it when Mrs. Jennings teases her about her romantic attachments, as Mrs. Jennings teases every single right. young woman of her acquaintance. Eleanor is a fantastic judge of character. When she thinks something or says something or draws a judgment on someone, I, as a reader, believe her. And I will accept her interpretation. So when her thoughts are basically, Miss Steele, the elder, is dumb as a bag of rocks. Lucy Steele, the younger, does not fool me with her smiles. She is manipulative. She sees through her immediately from their first conversation. She's an incredible suck-up, and she's a social climber. And Mm -hmm. she... And she looks elegant. Like, on first blush, mm-hmm. she does have a veneer of, like... And oh, her dialogue also comes off as just very polite. Yeah. And, but if she's, she's constantly... Eleanor sees right through it. She's constantly reprimanding her older sister. Like, Anne, shut up. Yeah. And it, 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 it kind of shows through the veneer where she's, like, kind of mean and obviously a social climber because she's like, Anne, shut up. You're, you're, you're ruining mm-hmm. our, our look as, like, classy people here. And she and Marianne... Eleanor and Marianne both hate. The steals. Oh basically. yeah, because they both. They, um, yeah, they're both. Marion just doesn't vulgar. like anyone who's not them. <laughs> right. She's still miserable. She just hates everybody. And she sees the ass kissing. They both yes. see the ass kissing happen. Um, Lucy Steele kisses ass with um, Lady Middleton, Sir John's 
wife. She's trying to get in with these rich people. She wants to take advantage of Mrs. Jennings, who's a wealthy woman. Mm-hmm. But one of the things she does imme- almost immediately on her introduction to Eleanor, even though they're not friends, is she's like, oh, Eleanor, I have to tell you this secret. Well, no, she starts, so they just are kind of thrown together every night because they get invited to dinner every night. Yeah. Eleanor and Marianne, even though they, they hate, they these, hate people now, <laughs> these people but they have to go. So they just sit around a lot together. But Miss Steele starts saying things like, are you acquainted with uh, Mrs. Ferris? Yeah. Which is Edward's mother. Yeah. And Eleanor's like, uh, no. And Lucy, oh, you must think it's so strange of me to ask. Why would I ask? It's so odd. I must explain myself. You must be wondering why I would ask. Oh, it's so embarrassing. I have to tell you. And I was like, I don't care. Stop talking. Yeah. And then she pops out with, oh, I've been engaged to Edward. And Eleanor cannot believe it. I mean, can you imagine the man that you love, that you thought loved you, that you thought was going to ask you to marry him, and then you find out from this bitch... But she can't show any of her distress because that's what Lucy Steele wants. She knows she knows Because Mrs. Jennings teases her yes, about Lucy him knows. all the time. That's why Lucy is almost there in the first place, right? She has caught wind that this bitch Eleanor is going to take her man and take her away, her possibility of being mm-hmm. a rich man's wife. So she goes and she's constantly shoving it in Eleanor's face. I'm engaged to Edward. I'm engaged to Edward. And she's got her on. on. And Eleanor can't show... Any distress, because that's just what Lucy wants. Basically, like, that's surprising. <laughs> I didn't know. You're in, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, like, go home and sob into your pillow. So, Eleanor should have been a spy. She, like, it, Cold War CIA. Send her into Soviet Russia. She will play it so cool. This is her her strength. And the other thing that while she's dealing with all this sadness, she has to be brave. Because Marianne is being so rude to everyone. Marianne will go into society and say nothing and stare into space. And she that is unacceptable. and doesn't react to anyone. Yeah, that's rude. It's unacceptable because Eleanor sees how nice everyone is being to them. I mean, they're getting all these invitations. Mrs. Mm-hmm. Jennings invites them to London. Mrs. Jennings really sees, seems to care about them. Marianne's not having it. And Eleanor has to do all of the burden of civility. This is interesting how Austin sees civility. I mean, you have to put up with dumb people. And all of the burden of that, to be the Lizzie Bennet, to be like treating everybody with respect even though you're too smart. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And especially when Eleanor herself is under this emotional blow. And I had there's this great passage where Marianne actually complains about Mrs. Jennings, the woman who really only, at the end of the day, wants her happiness. And it says, Marianne, even though she's a very smart girl, um, was neither reasonable nor candid. She couldn't allow for differences in personality. She could not believe that Mrs. Jennings could care about her because Mrs. Jennings does not understand her heart, her sensibilities, her tender feelings. Um, When she has a disappointment over Willoughby, when when Marianne is in London and learns Willoughby is marrying someone else, is not going to marry her, Mrs. Jennings tries to make her happy by bribing her with cherries and olives and wine and the best place by the fire. And this is an expression of love, but Marianne just says she doesn't care about me, me personally. She just loves gossip, and she just wants wants gossip, and that's why 
she likes me because I supply mm-hmm. her with gossip, which is unfair. I think that's unfair, yeah. It is unfair. And that's what Austin is trying to illustrate in our lives is that people may not understand us, but that doesn't mean they don't care. They're not mm-hmm. trying to be helpful. And sometimes when they're trying to be helpful, they're annoying. Mm-hmm. I have plenty of experience with that in my own life. Wait, with people trying to help you and being annoying or you're the annoying person? Uh, I think probably both ways. Okay. And I think we've, we've always, like... Especially when um, a parent once has your best interest at heart or, you know, like an older relative and they keep telling you like what you should do and you're like, shut yeah. up. They are coming from, so I have learned as I've gotten older that when something happens and you are upset, there are two ways people can react. They will be a fixer or a comforter. So if I see someone is hurting or in trouble, usually the first thing I will ask it, ask it, or if someone comes and says, this happened, I will say, do you want me to suggest a solution or do you just need me to give you comfort right now? Because parents, and I do this too with my family, we come from a place of let me fix it. Mm-hmm. I want to fix it and make it better. And sometimes that's not what you want. You're just like, stop, just shut up. Just get me some chocolate and just give me a hug. And, and you're not always looking for the fixing. That's what Mrs. Jennings wants to do. She's like, oh, Marianne, well, now you can marry Colonel Brandon. Mm-hmm. And you know how Marianne feels about first attachments. I mean, she could never love anybody again after Willoughby is gone. And, but, but Mrs. Jennings is a, fix, a fixer and sees everybody's problem as they don't have a husband. So she tries to push her into this relationship with Colonel Brandon. I have, I told you, did I tell you my big, yes, I told you my big theory about Eleanor, my big theory about Eleanor and the way that she is and the way that she reacts and how she is held back by her society. Basically she feels from showing what she really feels because she's not as a woman in that time, she's not allowed to have that demonstration of emotion. I feel like Eleanor is basically Jane Austen, who has to be the one to pull it together and always be practical and is funny and observant and always sees in the heart of people and has a biting sense of humor but can't always express it. It feels deeply. Right. And for all that, she's actually really a romantic at heart, too. Mm-hmm. And we know that Cassandra... Jane Austen's sister burned a lot of their correspondence. And I think the prevailing theory is the reason why is because maybe Jane Austen did think things, did write things or say things about people kind of similar to Eleanor where it can be, it's really funny, but it may not have been considered appropriate. And so she didn't want people reading that and judging her sister. And I just, for me, I really feel like I can't point to any obviously textual support or, but I just feel reading this book that Jane Austen really relates to Eleanor. You know, their humor is so similar. Half the time, the funny things are authorial observation. And half the time, the author slips into Eleanor's point. Yes, yes, yes. And she does that so... It's such a Jane Austen trademark that she starts saying things that you think are... Tr- you know, the the voice of omniscient narrator. And then you realize you're in the head of the person. You could get to the end of this book and there would be something like, and Eleanor decided to write everything down. <laughs> her journals and that's what you just read and you would believe it because the narrator's voice is so like Eleanor and maybe that's where I've developed this theory but I really feel when I'm reading the book that like Eleanor is a stand-in for Jane Austen yeah I I think there's something to that and um I think so the other thing I wanted to so now we're at the point of the story where just make it clear they go to London 
Marianne gets weaker and weaker because Willoughby is also in London, but she's not... She sends him notes every night yeah. and expects him to come by any moment. She sees him at a party and he cuts her. Like, meaning, like, he, he acts like they're not, you know, they didn't have a relationship. It is that a cold burn. Yeah, it really is. She's like, Willoughby, I, I think they actually take this in the movie and use it. Will you not shake my hand? Will you not shake hands with me? Yeah. I love that line. It's like, what? <laughs> because she just kind of walks up to him and sticks, Willoughby! The, oh, God, Kate Winslet is so amazing. Oh, yeah. But she spots him across the, so this is from the movie, but it's how I picture it in my head. Spots him across the room, and Eleanor's like, oh, God. I hope she doesn't see him. I hope she doesn't see him. And then you hear, Willoughby! <laughs> and you're just like, oh my God, no, it's going to be awful. And she runs up to him and, will you not take my hand? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know you. Oh, I, uh, and he, he, yeah, exactly. And it comes out. So he re- writes her a mean note. He returns the lock so of formal. her hair. It's so formal. And it just really is evil. And um, you find out later that he didn't read re- his new wife. His jealous his fiance. New, his jealous fiance forced him to write a mean letter. But anyway, the redemption of Willoughby is kind of a weird thing. But um, So Eleanor is in a position where it's a disaster. Her sister is fucking hysterical. You thought she was bad before. Oh, she You thought Marianne was bad before. She can't be restrained. She's like thrashing around on the bed. And also, Eleanor has to deal with Mrs. Jennings and all the people who are trying to help and doing Mm -hmm. it badly. And trying, you know, Mrs. Jennings, this is, this is the, one of the, the greatest and funniest things in the book when Mrs. Jennings comes to Marianne's room where Marianne is thrashing around. And she's like, oh, Eleanor, I have this glass of wine. It's the greatest Constantia oh, yes. wine. Um, and Eleanor's like, I think that my sister is not, she's indisposed right now, but if you will give me leave, I will drink the wine She's myself. like, give that to me. <laughs> she's so, she's like, oh, I can't take it. And it's funny because she's so cool when she says it. She's like, well, madam, if you will give me leave, I will drink the wine myself. But she's keeping it together. So then I just picture her like sitting, like knocking it back. In one yeah. big draft. Because she's got so much crap to keep, so many balls to keep in the air. And But it's just so horrible because while Marianne is like, ah, freaking out, Eleanor feels the same but can't yeah. show it. She has just as much reason to feel awful because she's divided from Edward forever. And what's so powerful about this book and what's so real about this book is that eventually it comes out that Edward is engaged to Lucy. A crisis happens. Edward is engaged to Lucy. Edward decides to stand by Lucy and say, no, I've asked her to marry me. And then, oh, and how does it come out? Oh, it's the Anne. best. Anne Steele. They're like sitting at dinner. And they're, so they're, the Anne and, and Lucy Steele are the guests of Fanny Dashwood. Remember Eleanor, um, Edward's sister who wants him to drive a barouche in the first circle. So she is rela- so she is married to Eleanor and Marianne's half-brother, John Dashwood. So she is their, like, half-sister-in-law. Yes. Okay, it's, it's kind of confusing. She has invited Lucy and, and, and Nancy Steele for Because Fanny is also total bitch. Oh, she's a huge bitch. But she loves Lucy because she's an ass kisser. Yeah. So she's like, oh, Lucy, you're so great. So Anne, who is, in the words of Mrs. Jennings... She's no conjurer. <laughs> but so they think that Fanny's their really good friend. 
Yeah, and well, and, and well, her name is Nancy Steele, but Lucy calls her Anne as a nickname. So anyway, Anne is like, Lord, they're so fo- they're so fond of Lucy, they won't make any difficulty mm-hmm. about it. So she just popped it all out. I just picture them at dinner, and she's like, Oh, so you know, I should tell you, Lucy and Edward totally engaged, and then it's. So again, we will talk about the movie separately, but this is when it comes out differently in the movie, but the reaction is one of the funniest. <laughs> it's so great. And we don't really see that. It's it's told to us through does Mrs. Jennings Yeah, Mrs. Yes. Jennings is telling Eleanor yeah. about it. And I think she just says that Fanny starts screaming. She goes into hysterics, she needs a doctor. Yeah, and she like runs out of the she room. throws them out of the house. And John Dashwood thinks that his wife is, like, dying because he just hears her screaming and freaking out. And he's like, poor baby. <laughs> it just, and it's very funny in the book, too. It is Because you, you can just picture it in your head. Um, yeah, and so it, it all comes out. And then Marianne hears about it. And she's like, Eleanor, are you telling me this whole time that you have been going through this and Eleanor, she's like, how can you have been so sedate, so calm? Where is your heart? This part, do you have this part flagged? I think we were going to talk about this in part two, but it's really, I feel like what Eleanor says. So here it is. So, um, you know, how long has this been known to you? And Eleanor says, I have known it this, these four months. Um, well, I'm going to read Marianne's because I actually have feelings about Marianne's response. So... Four months, cried Marianne again. So calm, so cheerful. How have you been supported? By feeling that I was doing my duty. My promise to Lucy obliged me to be secret. I owed it to her, therefore, to avoid giving any hint of the truth. And I owed it to my family and friends not to create in them a solicitude about me, which it could not be in my power to satisfy. Marianne seemed much struck. I have very often wished to undeceive yourself and my mother, added Eleanor, and once or twice I have attempted it, but without betraying my trust, I never could have convinced you. Four months, and yet you loved him. Yes. And then here's where it gets good, I think. Yes, but I did not love only him, and while the comfort of others was dear to me, I was glad to spare them from knowing how much I felt. Now I can think and speak of it with little emotion. I would not have you suffer on my account, for I assure you I no longer suffer materially myself. I have many things to support me. I am not conscious of having provoked the disappointment by any imprudence of my own, and I have borne it as much as possible without spreading it farther. I acquit Edward of all essential misconduct. I wish him very happy, and I am so sure of his always doing his duty, that though now he may harbor some regret, in the end he must become so." Lucy does not want sense, and that is built the foundation on which every good thing may be built. So I'm going to, it goes on. But basically, Marianne was suffering so much. Eleanor was like, how could I add to it by telling you this? And because Marianne loves Edward too. Edward and uh, Marianne and Mrs. Dash would also love Edward. Yeah. They thought he was a great guy. Mm. They were really excited he might be part of their family. And I think some of it is a bit of a martyr complex on Eleanor's part. (laughs) No, you know what I mean? Like. Yeah, she can bear suffering in silence if it's if she feels in, like in the aid of not adding to her family. Like I have to do this she because I can't. Like she's, her satisfaction is that she's doing a virtuous thing, right? The, the, the um, 
But I, I don't know. I think that her response is actually beautiful. And then when you said, you know, Mary, it is amazing. Thank you for reading it. Thank you for bringing that up. And when Mary, I did, I literally ripped the book out of Kristen's hands. I was like, give me that. I'm reading it. <laughs> when Marianne finds out, what's so amazing that and realistic about this book is when Marianne finally realizes that Eleanor has been brave and that Marianne herself has been epiphany moment. This is what you're waiting for the whole time with Marianne's character, basically. Basically. You would think that she would change. She would turn over a new leaf. But that's not how it works in real life. She just feels like crap. She does, but she does basically she say, tries. I am such an asshole. Yeah, like, she does have that she moment. Say, she does say that, but it doesn't change her essential behavior. Mm-hmm. She is still... Then she feels awful about not about noticing. And it's guilt upon yeah. guilt. And that makes her feel terrible yeah. again. So she doesn't rally. In fact, she basically, when they leave London and go to um, Cleveland, which is a different They're different They're on place. their way home, so they they're stop off home. at um, Mrs. Jennings' daughter's yes. house. Mrs. Palmer. Yes. And um, that's when Marianne falls into a fever because she right. has finally weakened herself so And she goes much. out and walks. Forever. And sits in wet stockings. Yeah. And as you know, when you get wet in Austin, you get sick. Well, it's like in those period movies. Anytime someone coughs, you're like, oh, great. <laughs> oh, great. Now someone's got tuberculosis. Someone's sitting in wet stockings. So you know what's <laughs> going to come of that. But if, if Marianne, th- what I was saying earlier, Marianne's ridiculous, but we still like her because we know she loves Eleanor. If she did not have that moment of self-awareness, mm-hmm. I, it would be, I feel like as a reader, it would be unforgivable. Because if you're going to have her love her sister so much, to then learn her sister had been suffering and not have that moment of, oh, my God, I am awful. It, again, saves her character. You're right. You're right. It's important for her to have that epiphany. I I focus on the fact that um, her behavior doesn't change. Even at the end, when Mrs. Dashwood and Marianne and Eleanor are all sitting at a table together and the servant comes in and says, Edward is married. It's the final blow to Eleanor. Says, I've just seen Mr. and Mrs. Ferris. Yeah. Um, Eleanor should be sad. It's her tragedy. However, Marianne falls back into hysterics. And Mrs. Dashwood is like, which of my daughters yeah. do I attend to first? And she goes to Marianne because she's louder. She's the squeakier wheel when it's really Eleanor's tragedy. And that's... Isn't Eleanor kind of struck... Numb by this news, but Mrs. Kind of, Dashwood yeah. sees her distress. Right, it's kind of the first time I think Eleanor visibly is shaken by the fact right. That she doesn't express it vocally, but it is obvious yes. for the first time. It is obvious. Yes, but don't worry, gentle listeners, because uh, there has been a switcheroo, and Lucy has married Edward's brother, Edward's brother, who's also whose name is also Ferrer. So. Uh, the servant was mistaken. If you had any illusions as to Lucy's character, like, well, maybe she she loved him, she's going to still marry him, like, no. Because as soon as Edward gets disinherited, when it comes out that he is engaged to Lucy, who has no fortune, no consequence, he gets disinherited, Lucy basically immediately sets her eyes on Robert, who will now inherit and it's so messed up. <laughs> it's so great because that leaves 
Um, Eleanor glories in Edward's integrity. She's glad he stood by Lucy because that's the person she loves and she wants to love. Well, I wouldn't say glad. No, she says she glories in his integrity. Mm. She's not glad. And in fact, it says when she thinks about him and what his future will be, nothing satisfies her. To think about him happy hurts her. To think about him sad also hurts her. Yeah, you know, she's a total martyr. Well, she is like a no offense to any. Oh, you know, we don't have any Midwest listeners. Didn't we cover this? Like, she is like that Midwestern martyr complex. You have to remember, though, that this is the this is the epitome of what Austin considers morality. Yeah, and I don't. I mean, I think that in order to be, you know, moral, you have to have a, a willingness to martyr yourself a little bit. In fact, I think, I just feel like saying glories is a little... But she, it's, a, it's a quote. It's yeah, a quote. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, we can, as a modern reader, we have criticisms of these books oh, from, yeah. like, right. certain, from, from different perspectives. Yeah. The fact that she's like, I will take comfort in the fact that it he's... Is, you're and right. yeah, she wouldn't, I think that if he broke off the engagement, she would not be with him. Do you think she would? It depends on the circumstances. But if, he, if, if okay, so ooh, this will be fun. Let's play what if. What if Edward broke it off with Lucy? He just look, what if it didn't come out and he dumped he did, Lucy? What if he just straight dumped? Yeah, him? he's like, I love Eleanor. This is not going to work. We need to let it go. I think she would still have accepted him because she she would have said to herself, he's been honest with Lucy. Yeah, and I I do. So think- is there a scenario where she wouldn't? No. I don't Except think so. him? I okay. think she loves him and she would rationalize anything at this point, really. Okay. But it doesn't mean she can't glory in his integrity. Because she, because she loves him. Yeah. And because she has to have something. I mean, you have to have something. I must just be more selfish because I would still be pissed. I mean, part, <laughs> part of the whole plot of this book is the fact that Marianne can't get over the fact that Willoughby has left her and she doesn't understand why. And she finds out that he's left her because he's a cad. He's knocked up another woman. He's oh, lost yeah, that is. Fortune. We have to talk about that when we talk about Colonel Brandon. That is a huge... Yeah. And so he, but he, he dumps her basically so he can marry someone who has money. Yes. And that's really hard for Marianne to deal with because it makes you feel foolish. If you love somebody mm-hmm. who turns out is much worse of a person than you thought and dumps you for a mercenary reason, you feel like you have, you have no trust in your own judgment. Mm-hmm. You're like, I was Especially the way he acted towards her. Yeah. You think I was played for a fool. It really hurts your self-esteem. It really hurts you. And she doesn't feel that way. She, Eleanor, Eleanor doesn't feel that mm-hmm. way. She can at least have the comfort that he's It wasn't any bad She guy. says that. It was nothing. I have n- none of my behavior. I can't, I am completely, none of this is my fault, basically. Yeah, and that's, like, I didn't do anything her. wrong. But she, and, but she also kind of forgives him. Yeah. He, I feel like he should have been honest with her. But neither of them talk about their feelings. No. This is the problem. Neither of them express or talk about their feelings ever. And he's sort of bound to secrecy, but you're right. He should have told her. And she sort of scolds him for that at the end. She's mm-hmm. like, you should, have, you should have left Norlin when you felt yourself falling in love with me because that was very dishonorable. Um, or you should have been honest and be like, I can't marry you, you know, so I, she could have protected her own feelings rather than falling for him. But that's, um, that's like you were saying, but I want to read, um, the proposal and then I'm going to talk about that, um, line, I compare it with yours. So when Edward comes back yes. at the very end, at the end, God, I love these kids. I love Edward and Eleanor and I was so invested in their relationship this time around and the proposal just fucking knocks me out. Every single page of this book, by the way, just knocked me out. I was highlighting on my Kindle and I have like 75 passages highlighted 
every single page had something so brilliant or so funny or just something that just made me love. I think the reason why this one is so great, I mean, we kind of talked about how Emma, the proposal is kind of a letdown, yeah. you know? The reason why I think this one is so great is because right from the beginning of the book, you understand that Eleanor and Edward are the couple. And you have the tension. Like in Emma, it comes in slowly. Like you said you got to the end, you didn't even know they were the main romantic yeah, yeah. interest. And this book, Austin tells you in the very beginning, like from like the first chapter. And you live with practically. the tension the whole And again, they never talk about their feelings. So you're basically yelling at the book, just <laughs> tell him, just tell her, just express that you love each other. Just kiss her. You know, it's one of those moments. Oh man. So then when they finally tell each other he comes to her so he's been set free from lucy she has no idea she thinks he's married to lucy eleanor thinks that eleanor everybody thinks yes i just saw mr and mrs ferris (gasps) oh my god edward and lucy got married but wait and this is the passage where she talks about the fucking weather and it's adorable so they're all at home edward comes Eleanor thinks he's married. She and Mrs. Dashwood is kind to him. She's like, okay, it's all over. I'll just be nice to him because we love him anyway. Mm-hmm. So, Mrs. Dashwood met him with a look of forced complacency, gave him her hand, and wished him joy. Congratulations on your way, kind of thing. Like, oh, we're so happy for you. Congratulations. Yes. And he's like, what? <laughs> he colored and stammered out an unintelligible reply, which is so Edward. Yeah. Eleanor. I mean, Hugh Grant doing his, like, bumbling thing, it's, it's so Edward. <laughs> Eleanor's lips had moved with her mother's, and when the moment of action with, was over, she wished that she had shaken hands with him, too. But it was then too late, and with a countenance meaning to be open, she sat down again and talked of the weather. <laughs> when Eleanor had ceased to rejoice in the dryness of the season, a very awful pause took place. It was put to an end by Mrs. Dashwood, who felt obliged to hope that he had left Mrs. Ferrers very well. In an hurried manner, he replied in the affirmative. Eleanor, resolving to exert herself, though fearing the sound of her own voice, now said, Is Mrs. Ferrers at Longstaple? At Longstaple, he replied with an air of surprise. No, my mother is in town. I meant, said Eleanor, taking up some work from the table, to inquire after Mrs. Edward Ferris. She dared not look up, but her mother and Marianne both turned their eyes on him. He colored, seemed perplexed, looked doubtingly, and after some hesitation said, Perhaps you mean my brother. You mean Mrs. Mrs. Robert Ferris. Mrs. Mrs. Robert Ferris <laughs> was repeated by Marianne and her mother in an accent of utmost amazement. And though Eleanor could not speak, even her eyes were fixed on him with the same impatient wonder. He rose from his seat and walked to the window, apparently from not knowing what to do, took up a pair of scissors that lay there, and while spoiling both them and their sheath by cutting the latter to pieces as he spoke, said in a hurried voice, Perhaps you do not know, you may not have heard, that my brother is lately married to, to the youngest, to Miss Lucy Steele. His words were echoed with unspeakable astonishment by all but Eleanor, who sat with her head leaning over her work in a state of such agitation as made her hardly know where she was. Yes, said he, they were married last week and are now at Dawlish. Eleanor could sit it no longer. She almost ran out of the room, and as soon as the door was closed, burst into tears of joy, which at first she thought would never cease. Edward, who had till then looked anywhere rather than at her, 
saw her hurry away, and perhaps saw or even heard her emotion, for immediately afterwards he fell into a reverie, which no remarks, no inquiries, no affectionate address of Mrs. Dashwood could penetrate, and at last, without saying a word, quitted the room and walked out towards the village, leaving the others in the greatest astonishment and perplexity on a change in his situation so wonderful and so sudden. I just fucking love it. He's like, whoa. I just so much emotion. He has to get up and leave and go walk around. I remember thinking, finally. Finally, Eleanor. Oh, it's such a release. It all comes out. And of course, I mean, again, the movie, like, oh, Emma Thompson is so brilliant. She makes that weird noise, right? But it's just like all of this. She'd convinced herself, I I can speak of it. Um, I hold no ill will. I wish him happiness i was not at fault oh. i'm fine i can speak of it yeah and then, then it, it all goes out. out and it's a, and she runs out of the room eleanor runs out of the room it's, and balls and everyone can hear it the scene is so saturated with emotion because she has finally lost it and i love how he's just like whoa and he has to go out and what he's like i need some air <laughs> because he has to propose to her but he it's so emotional and he feels so bad about the, the distress he's put her through and it's almost too much to handle it's like and even it says like it's too much happiness to handle for her at first she can't even like deal um and she just can't be tranquil and i just love that that detail is in there she like can't bring herself back to sensible eleanor and it's so romantic in that way does she write the proposal? No, it's again. We've talked very about, depressing. Yeah, we've talked about this before. How Austin sh- shies away from actually putting to page that moment. I'm breaking my own rule because if you had asked me before my reread if this is a rom- romantic book, I would say no. Colonel Brandon and Edward are ciphers. You're never mm-hmm. going to handle on them. It's really about the girls and how they deal with adversity. It's about how super romantic books are bad and dumb and not realistic. And then I read it this time around and had got so invested in Eleanor and her emotions which are real and which are there which I never get really given her enough credit for mm-hmm. before and it's because love. we love Eleanor and Marianne rather than you and I have talked about and talked about doing a separate podcast when we get through the books about how many Austin heroes are kind of underdeveloped as characters and the ones that we like the best Darcy and Tilney are well developed and that might be part of the reason why um, but the reason why you're invested is because you love Eleanor and Marianne, not because like Edward's such a, an awesome dude. Yeah, it's, yeah. But because yeah, uh-huh. we know Eleanor so well now, we've been in her head through most of the book, and the fact that she's going to get everything she wanted, it makes you really happy. As yeah, the it makes you really happy. I, I just, I'm really happy. And the, I mean, the mission statement of this podcast is that we resent when people classify Jane Austen just as a romance writer. But we've also talked about, I think mostly in the context of Northanger Abbey, that there is actually, but there, well, there is romance and there's also nothing wrong with loving It's romance. a huge point in both, there, there's a, a scene in both Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility where Austen makes the point at that 
In avoiding one affectation, people often fall into another. And me, in avoiding becoming the romance, like loving Austin for the romance, mm-hmm. I've fallen into the affectation of finding no romance in novels. And to be honest, it's not true. And this this book really drove that home to me that I was invested in it because they're so real. I mean, we're all people, right? We're yeah. people. I like romance. Everybody likes romance. I, I, I think, and love is one of the essential human yeah, it is. experiences. It's like, and it's like I said in the first podcast: don't lie to me, men. Don't act like you yeah. don't have this in your life. Everybody so I think this. maybe rather than saying that we are resentful of people, it's not just that people consider her a romance author; it's that they only consider her a yes. romance author. We're not saying there's no romance. I mean, most, almost every novel, the essential plot is. Will this girl get married? Yeah, <laughs> but that's not all. Yeah, it's about it's about the human condition it's as a, work a whole. Of staggering genius that makes you go what <laughs> yes. shit on every page because it's it convicts you. And I have to say, I was very much con- convicted and, and um, felt in my heart that I had failed when I read, for example, that passage about having no candor and not mm-hmm. accepting that Mrs. Jennings is trying to trying to help. Mm-hmm. And there are so many other passages in this book that have made me feel like... um, In fact, I think I missed a lot of the things that can be gleaned from this book the first maybe three or four times that I I, Yeah, I feel exactly the same. And um, even even just personal, like, life lessons. There's a lot of stuff about the... And more so, I think, perhaps with women, but the essentials of human nature and the way we feel in this book and she shows it by juxt- um, doing the juxtaposition of the way Eleanor and Marianne react to things um, for me the reason why the end of this book is so satisfying when Eleanor and Edward end up together and then Marianne and Colonel Brand Marianne who did not die <laughs> <laughs> and Colonel Brandon who loved her through the whole thing they eventually end up together which is kind of the epitome of her growth as a character yes. where she right was up well he's too old he could never love again he's too infirm we're gonna be crazy and then she marries him and is happy mm-hmm. that's like in time. talk about in character time. growth yeah. yes but that's also realistic yes. you don't change overnight no um, the reason why the end of this book is so satisfying to me, not because, oh, they're all happy, they all came together, it's that you love these two characters so much that to have them both end up not necessarily what they wanted in the beginning, but at a place where you know they should be. As, as a reader, we can see everything and understand that this is what should happen, and when it does, it's so satisfying because we love them so much. I mean, we want Colonel Brandon to be happy, but... Um, we don't know him. You know, we don't know him that well, and some people really feel that Marianne is sort of sacrificed to Colonel Brandon and is like, does not really get her happy ending. I don't think that's true. That's no, interesting, but I don't feel that way. it says at the end she loves Colonel Brandon at the end with her whole heart, as much as she would have done with Willoughby. It just takes some time. So Eleanor has a really amazing, not epilogue, but Eleanor has a really fantastic kind of, it's a moment of reflection maybe where she kind of, that's why I'm saying you could, she could say that this was her journal because she kind of sits and thinks, or I can't remember if she actually says this out loud to anyone, but she understands that if Marion and Willoughby had been married, it would have been a disaster. Neither one of them would be would be happy. Um, Willoughby ends up. We'll talk about this more when we talk about Willoughby's character in the next episode. Um, if Willoughby didn't, Willoughby did not marry Marianne. He married the woman 
who was rich because he's gotten used to that lifestyle. And so he regrets marrying it. He will always look on her as the one who got away kind of thing. But Eleanor understands that if Willoughby had married Marianne, he would have grown to resent her. The love would not have been enough to sustain him. He would have been miserable. They would have been in debt. They would have had no money. And it would have driven them apart, basically. It would have driven the love away from them. And that is absolutely what happens in the real world. Yeah, it's so awesome. If you ask people, like, why why did you get divorced? Yeah. Money Money. is the number one thing. Yeah. The fact that she ends up with someone like Colonel Brandon, who will adore her, she won't have to be destitute, she won't have to be resented, and she comes to see his good qualities. It's not just like, well, he will love you, so you'll be happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She genuinely recognizes how great a person he is. So I, so it's I reject like that. There's a con- idea it says in the book. There's a confederacy against her. Every single person in her life knows that. This is what should probably happen for the best, for the good of both of them, for the good of Marianne, for the good of Colonel Brandon. There's a um, a super sweet last line, which I feel like ties it all together for me, in that it says, uh, so Edward gets the living of um, Colonel Brandon's estate. He does join the church. Yes, he joins the church uh, because he's been disinherited, so he mm-hmm. needs some money. And Colonel Brandon is like, I will give you a living. You can come be my clergyman on my estate. And so Eleanor gets to live with Edward in the, in the Next door in the to Marianne and Colonel Brandon. Yeah, within sight of the mansion house, as it's called, at Delaford. And at the end it says, They lived together without producing any coolness between themselves. Uh and with you know they essentially have with mutual respect and love for one another and it's sense and sensibility they've come together they've accepted each other. <laughs> they've come to harmonious um uh equanimity and no it's so if you think about the beginning both eleanor and marianne their emotional scales are both completely unbalanced eleanor is tipped towards the doesn't express any emotion and marianne is tipped in the opposite direction of Everything is overwhelming. And by the end of the book, they have both arrived at sort of an emotional equilibrium. Yes. And that is when they can be happy. Yes. And be satisfied. And I just have to, I think a huge part of that, and this is why Austin, and Austin understands this, obviously. It would, this happens also with Jane and Lizzie, I think, that normally if someone got married, they would then move far away. So... Eleanor and Marianne would have been separated. They would have gone off and married and been like maybe a hundred miles away or even further would not see each other hardly that often. And one of the beautiful things about the ending of this book is that they both live with like a mile of each other. Their mother who is still at the cottage just basically moves in with Marianne and Colonel Brandon. Margaret hangs out with them all the time. And when she's around better people, like grows up to be a really kind of awesome young woman and also makes a good match. But their family stays intact. Nobody leaves. They get to be happy with their man and with their family. And that doesn't happen a lot in the real world that right. Austin was living in. Right. And Jane yeah, Austen, right. you know, she lived with her sister. Yeah. And the they lived together through her whole so life. And I think that is one of the reasons why when she writes these novels, if, when there are sisters, They're they right. stay together through their lives. Yeah. Except for in Persuasion. The other thing I wanted to mention, though, is I, I do see some symptoms of clinical depression in Marianne. And as I said, it's very realistic that she doesn't just pop, snap out of it. I'd say more than some. Yeah, yeah, pretty much all the symptoms. And honestly, 
with the uh, obsession with Willoughby and with the, the, the incredible ups and downs. And then when she's depressed, also her like incredible irritation when she goes out. Into oh, yeah, mm-hmm, totally. Um, you could even see, say bipolarity. I mean, she's just bouncing up mm-hmm. and down and all around. I mean, I think most, I'm sure that all of us inclu- and our listeners know someone who has been depressed as a disorder. Not just like, oh, I'm sad, but like actually depressed. It's a physical ailment, and and certainly Jane Austen cannot cure you of depression. You need the the drugs. If you're depressed, you need the drugs. But (laughs) however, there is also something you need to do. It's almost like pulling a muscle. You have to exercise your mind as well. There's There's a treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy which is sort of like physical therapy Mm -hmm. but for the mind i mean depression is just an ailment that affects the mind where what marianne does is fall into a pattern of thinking where she can't think of anything else and constant self-recrimination because of her selfish behavior and it takes a long time for her to recover from that and it it takes her sister's example of how to behave and her striving towards that and there's always going to be regret. You know, Marianne can't take any of that behavior back. Mm-hmm. And my favorite line in the whole novel, or favorite couplet, is um, finally, at the end, Eleanor and Marianne are talking about what they've been through. And Marianne says, oh, I'll look back on my own, you know, behavior with regret. And she, Eleanor says, do you compare your behavior with Willoughby's, with his? And um, Marianne says... I compare it with what it ought to have been. I compare it with yours. I don't know, it gets I And then Kristen balls. I cry in the movie. Oh, God, so good. Oh, Which is interesting because I personally feel that Eleanor doesn't really have... It's so interesting it's a, how you're it's a, not on board. It's a beautiful line, and there is no doubt that Eleanor's behavior was much more socially appropriate. Yeah. But for me, it's but Austin is advocating the stiff upper lip. I yeah. mean, I think from a that's modern a very British thing. Yeah, it's a very British thing. Well, I think from a modern perspective, you're actually not on board with the full message that Austin was actually trying to say. So I don't think we're supposed to feel that Eleanor is unhealthy. And well, perhaps unhealthy. I think that her ability to compartmentalize is sometimes not great for her emotionally. I think Eleanor also suffers depression, but she can't, she doesn't have the luxury of showing it as being as demonstrative. But I think if you say that her behavior was always spot on, then she has no growth as a character. And I don't think that's true. I do. I think you're right. She does have some growth as a character. Because if you say that her behavior was always the way it should, then she doesn't change through the book, she just happens to get what she wants without she. Any she change. does crack. Yeah, <laughs> for self, does she crack. does, and I and that is when like Edward finally, when she does crack, it's like, well, now, thank God, like people know how she feels. Yeah, and then Edward is like, oh shit, she's like really in love with me. <laughs> if this, if when they had been at New Orleans, if either of them had just talked. Yeah, and mentioned it. Yeah, a lot of this it's heartache could have been avoided. That's now maybe that's not something you could do back then, and that is its own discussion about the rigidity of Regency manners. Yeah, and how it could hold you back from actually being happy. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's you know definitely I think it's un- it's unhealthy. It could be perceived today as just unhe- very unhealthy. Also, the obsessive, by the way, 
honor your father and mother to the extreme degree, you know, and do whatever. Yes, they we say. have to talk about that in the next episode about Mr. John Dashwood and Fanny Dashwood <sighs> wanting to honor the wishes of his father to take care. Yeah, that's right. And how that um, that dance that takes place. Yeah, which is great. But for me, I mean, for me, I see my interpretation of this book is that Eleanor and Marianne, like I said, are both on opposite spectrums, and then both kind of come together in the middle, and that's when they find happiness. I think Ang Lee would agree with you. I was watching the commentary of the movie version, and there's a point where Marianne is walking towards a, the corner of a field where there's, like, two corners that come together, and the commentary was like, Ang Lee wanted us to feel that sense and sensibility, and Marianne was coming to an uh, 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 equilibrium between them both. Mm-hmm. In general, that's he wanted to show that you have to merge the two things. Right, you can't you can't exist in one pole. Yeah, or the other. Now, it would be really interesting to talk to Jane Austen. Ah. Be like, is that what you meant? Or if she was like, well, no, Eleanor is actually just supposed to be the example through the whole book. Mm-hmm. Then I would be like, oh God, okay, well I was wrong. But either way, I think it's interesting to look at it with that modern eye. Yeah, and see that. That only when she does express emotion does she get what she wants. Well, remember, the people that Austin favors the most get the happiest marriages. And I believe that we could say that um, that Marianne and Brandon have some drawbacks and that it's not Marianne's first choice and, you know, it it doesn't have the wild passion that Marianne would have wanted. Oh, oh. I would beg to differ with that. I bet behind closed doors, I mean, I don't want to get too dirty other than swearing, but you got to know that they have some hot bedroom action. Come on. What, Brandon? Yes, he's like, he's in, yeah. Don't you think? I do think we should do a podcast of who has Sex in Austin? Oh, uh, it's too crude for us. We'll, we'll do an NC-17. Yeah, we'll do an NC-17. We no, it doesn't have to be crude. It doesn't have to we be don't, crude. Yeah, it's true. It, it doesn't have to be crude, but maybe even the discussion of it is a little bit too far for some people. But um, I honestly think of these people as sexual beings. Well, we already talked about this in terms of Mansfield Park, Mansfield Park yeah. and how it would just be like, oh, not hot. Yeah. Nobody wants to see that. Porn. I kind of want <laughs> to think of Eleanor who... It, um, they probably have very is, tender, beautiful... Well, perhaps. I kind of like to think of her as this good girl who never goes beyond, you know, Lady the in the lines. streets. And a... <laughs> I, I like to think of her as finding herself super empowered, mm-hmm. like finding her, her, her inner goddess to yeah. borrow 50 shades of gray reference and like taking Edward around the world. You know, like I, I like to think of her as being very empowered by understanding that she has the ability to have this sexual relationship and that, you know, she can, she can give him something, you know, he's so shy and he needs to be drawn out and he needs to be reinforced and told that people love him because he has this mm-hmm. unloving mother, this is horrible family. Yeah. He need, he has a hole inside him. It's, he's ready to be filled. She's going to fill, fill his hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, we have mentioned this before that, again, the, rigi- the rigidity of Regency manners, women who do not marry are cut off from having any kind of sexual life. And that is a huge part of basic human experience. I mean, the point of us as a species is to procreate, right? I mean, if you're going to look at it from a purely biological, like you procreate to continue your species. Yeah. You have now cut off unmarried women from having Unless they, you know, get some on the side, which 
go girl. <laughs> but that runs the risk of having a Mariah situation mm-hmm. where you are then a pariah. Mariah's a pariah. Oh God. <laughs> it's getting late. <laughs> but how sad is it that if you did not get married, you were basically forbidden to have that whole range of human experience to express yourself that way, to experience it. So once Marion and Eleanor are married, then they can almost like live full. It's kind of sad though, right? Yeah. You had to be married to well, ex- have full life experiences. And that's certainly then they thought that women didn't need sex, right? right. Like they, it was just totally unnatural for women to like like sex but mm-hmm. of course it still happened within marriages that, that there's a whole subplot this. of sense and sensibility where a girl we'll have to talk about this yeah, time because this. you there's a lot oh god willoughby's character i find actually really fascinating but i was saying there's a whole subplot where a girl gets um pregnant out of wedlock yeah um and he claims she seduces him yeah. oh he's so full <laughs> of shit but it's it at least so it clearly happens and he can walk away scot-free. But Willoughby's care. Oh, it's so fascinating because you could almost forgive him. He shows up when Marianne is sick. Like, is she okay? You have to tell me if she's going to die. And you're like, oh, wow, he really does love her. And I do think he really loved her as much as he's capable of it. And right when you're starting to think, like, oh, like, I really do kind of feel bad for him. And Eleanor does, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then she remembers he seduced, seduced. knocked up, and then left... Yeah. This poor... What's her name? Beth? Beth. Yeah. And you just remember that and you're like, fuck you, Willoughby. I know. And Eleanor even allows herself to think of him as poor Willoughby. Yeah, but again, this is he why... He brought it all on himself. This, this is, is why she's a good judge of character because it's, it's... You do feel a little sorry for when someone loves someone else and they have blown it. It's sad. <laughs> it he blew sad. it. And he is terrified he that she's it. about to die. Yeah, that's true. That's he true. like just ditches his wife in London, rides out there to find out if she's going to die. You can feel bad for him, but you will not forgive him. I'm a Jew. We do not. <laughs> we will forgive, but we will not forget. I will mm-hmm. not forget Never that Willoughby knocked up. Just remember Beth. <laughs> I'm going to make a shirt. <laughs> Never forget Beth. The North remembers. It's like a Game of Thrones thing. Well, our fan, Mr. I, makes a very good point about... Um, I, I have said some... Un- un- Wait, un- are we getting into the mailbag now? No, well, okay. this is not quite the mailbag. Okay. So. There are two adaptations of Sense and Sensibility worth talking about. One is the Ang Lee, which is one of the best adaptations of any work of literature of all time. But the other is Andrew Davies' Sense and Sensibility. Which he and, tried. And there, um, what's that? He tried. He tried. It's, it's okay. He tried. It's perfectly serviceable. There is um, a scene with Colonel Brandon and Beth where Colonel Brandon has to tell Beth mm-hmm. she's oh, holding yeah. her little baby. Mm-hmm. He has to tell her, like, look, he's married. And she's devastated. So not only do we see the effect on Marianne, we see the effect on this second woman, which really makes the culpability, drives the culpability of Willoughby home. Yeah, that is an excellent point. Like, her life is ruined. Yeah, ruined. She is considered a ruined woman. And I feel bad, so bad for Brandon because this happened for him twice. His, yeah. His love was ruined. Basically, like, his ward kind of... He sees ruined. her as, like, his daughter, basically. Yeah. The daughter that he would have had. <laughs> I, the little love child. Yeah. <laughs> so, um... Willoughby is just a total jerk. Just uh, ruining lives wherever he goes. But he, he, he even ruins his wife's life because he doesn't love her. Yeah, but here's the thing. We've talked about this. We talked about it a lot in the last book um, about how people get their comeuppance, right? Right. Like in Lady Susan, we talk about how she doesn't really get punished. Like usually in Austin, if you go against 
society's morals to a large extent, you're going to get it in the end. Willoughby doesn't... What is he... Oh, he suffers because he regrets Marianne. Oh, I'm sorry. While you're living in your mansion with your hot, rich wife. Like, oh, yeah, Marianne, I look upon her fondly. There's even a passage where it's like, well, you know, you might assume that Willoughby died of a broken heart. And that's oh, sort no. of like Jane Austen's like making fun of romantic yeah. novels. Like, no, he still hunt, went out with his pointers and his hunters and had a good time and shot some birds. Because that's what happened. Yeah. That's what happens when you're per- when you're protected by the patriarchy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but that's exactly the point that yeah. she's making. Whereas Beth is her life is ruined, but yeah. he was he also had illegitimate. You know, it like, takes two to tango. Bad sex outside of the marriage, premarital sex. Sex. Do you believe in premarital, pre-marital sex? sex. <laughs> <laughs> that's a Saint Elmo's fire. <laughs> Oh, Rob Lowe. I will always regret Rob Lowe. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's... I think we've done a really solid look at Eleanor and Marianne. Yes. As two sides of an emotional coin. In the the humor, uh, we will talk about next time. In With all the, the secondary characters. All the secondary characters. Including Willoughby. So get ready, because yeah. I'm just going to... She is going to go off. Yeah. Is there old business... Is there a new business? Is oh, there do we have old business? Time I don't for know. the wheat chief. Kristen, shall we walk to the wheat chief and fetch <laughs> our post? Yeah, we'll be back in two hours after our you know three mile long. Well, I gotta get my ten thousand steps. <laughs> you catch the Pokemon. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's Rattata again. I gotta get that Squirtle. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> if I get one more, yeah, there's a gem at the wheat chief. <laughs> yeah, someone dropped a lure. <laughs> You're gonna tell the story of what you brought over today. What I brought over. Oh, the donuts? She brought Pokemon-themed donuts. They look yes. like those bowls. Oh, yeah. I can post a picture on the Facebook. But there's a great um, donut place in D.C. called Astro Fried Chicken and Donuts. And they made a special... It looks like one of the balls that you throw to catch them. It's very cute. Pokeballs. So when Bay gets off the plane tonight, I'm going to have Aww. Pokemon donuts for Aww. him. Because I'm the best damn girlfriend <laughs> ever. I bet if you put an engagement ring in there, he'd accept... <laughs> No, I'm not going to ask. I have to do everything. I am not going to ask. Um, I draw the line. I, I should have said that. So we have gotten a couple of emails uh, from a fan, devoted fan, uh, TJ. Thank you for your emails. Um, one of the things he said that was so interesting was that, you know how in Mansfield Park, okay, Mansfield Park digression, you know how the, um, I know, suck it up, um, there, the play is interrupted when Mr. Yates tries to do it at Ecclesford, and then it's interrupted again. Lover's vows. Lover, lover's vows. Then it's interrupted again. Plaitus interruptus. Yes, and, and he's basically like, that's how the two Crawford relationships sort of fall apart. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, so close, but no cigar. Because of, uh, you know... Circumstances. Well, yeah. the dad shows up, kind of. You, know, yeah. you don't want your dad walking in on you when you're doing a play. Um, yeah. <laughs> So that was really interesting. Uh, so thank you. thank you for the email. I thought it was really interesting. There we are a lot of do really love reading all the emails I you know. guys send us. Yeah, I know. There are a lot of really good points, too. But um, my mind is, like, shattered after this epic two-hour podcast. So, I, Well, uh, I just want to make one comment about the emails. What I love about... I don't want to say fans because it seems very, like, well, we have fans. What I love about Austin fans 
is when they write us an email, it's not just like, Hey guys, I really love the podcast. You know, I really liked this episode. Keep it up. Thanks. Sincerely, whatever. It's like huge amounts of discussion. Yeah. And like, it made me think about this one passage yeah. in the book and blah, blah. And I'm just like, Oh my God, these people are brilliant. Yeah. You guys are so smart yeah. and yeah. great. And we, I love reading all of it. And it also makes me feel stupid. And then I'm like, Oh, that's a really good point. And then I'll start. Kristen mostly handles the correspondence, but sometimes I'll send her be like, please respond this. Yeah. And I'll start to, and it'll get longer and longer. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> But I love that you guys are engaged in the discussion and will participate because we obviously love talking about books. (laughs) We have a fan. This is my favorite story of all time. It makes me feel of all time. Do you like it better than Mansfield Park? I thought that was your favorite story of all time. Okay, I have a bad tendency to hyperbole that (laughs) Margaret continually calls me out on. Our fan Adelaide wrote us. Are we allowed to say her name? Yeah. I wrote to her and I was like, is it cool if we say your name? And it's a beautiful, I love the name Adelaide. It always makes me think of the Ben Folds song. Adelaide, far from the United States. Anyway, she heard us mention her letter and she was gardening and she threw her trowel into the air. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully she's gardening against me. Don't put an eye out. Um, And on that note, I guess I'm good if you want to. I'm trying to think, do we have any other old business that we have to? I, I love by the way that Kristen is not apologizing for calling the persuasion fans in the movie theater in the last episode basic bitches. I softened it a bit by saying I still love you. It was great, but I I expected you to come (laughs) back and be full of like full of apology. Regret and no, don't. I did not get any angry mail. I know we have fans whose favorites are persuasion. I'm saying that's fine. Just don't like Rock concert. But that's like, because our like we just got done saying our fans are really smart. Like people, know, I mean, we love all Austin. <laughs> yeah, of course. Persuasion is still one of my most favorite books. Of no all one's. Time. Yeah, I mean, no one's going to Twitter flame us because they know that we're just kidding. Yeah. And okay. obviously, we love God, it. I hope so. If you don't, you have not been listening. <laughs> What's really funny is when Kristen and I ask friends of ours, "Have you been listening to the podcast?" And they get this look for a second, like, oh, shit. Because they haven't. And then they have to they think pretend like they of have. a nice way to say they haven't. Or like Kevin, who doesn't. No. Oh, I download it. Yeah. And the episodes Bay's not here for, he does not listen to. I can say this because he will not listen to this episode. Right? You know? We should be like, all of our friends listening, if you actually listen, yeah. the password is... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Ha ha. <laughs> no, I changed it to make it weirder. Oh. We always say ha. Okay. Anything else? No, I think we pretty much just, you know, there's not much else to say about this. It's, we're just so punch drunk now. I know. Thank you guys for listening. We love you all, and we will uh, talk to you next time. We'll be back for Sense and Sensibility Part 2. Yay.